You're listening to the Master Photography Podcast. Welcome into the Master Photography Roundtable, part of the Master Photography Podcast Network. You are joined by thousands of photographers listening to this show who are all on the same journey to master their photography. I'm Jeff Harmon, the host for this episode, and I'm joined by Brent Bergherm. What's up, Brent? Hey, how's it going? Good to be here. Good, good. Good to connect with you again. It's been a little bit since oh, we've been able to get together. It has been so long, hasn't it? Yeah. Time flies. <laughs> it does. It does. We've been having lots of good things going on, though. So yeah, I'm excited. All right. So uh, I wanted to very briefly at the top of this show, give kind of a, a software update status update. <laughs> there you go. I, I know there's two updates there, but that's kind of we're updating the status of software updates. There we go. Anyway, uh, over on the on my Photo Taco podcast website, uh, I have a page now dedicated to keeping everyone up to speed on what my recommendations are, and uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to that page for those who are interested. And I'm going to give my official Photo Taco seal of approval on the most current versions of Lightroom and Photoshop, and Yay. Mac OS Catalina. So Whoa. yeah, even Catalina. I I think right. I think. Most everybody's had enough time to at least all the stuff that I use has been updated so that it's working. Okay. Um, there is a big caveat on that. You definitely want to check your software and the peripherals you use before you do the upgrade to make sure that the makers of your software and drivers for your peripherals have released updates that are compatible with Catalina and that you apply those updates. Um, there still could be some software or some drivers that you are using that is not updated and it is going to be a problem in Catalina. They made some really core changes, especially with some permissions that you have to have for things to get access to uh, hard drives and storage on your computer. So the everything has to be updated. And if it's not updated, it's it's just not going to work. So there is that caveat. You'll want to make sure you do a check. You want to go like visit the websites of the manufacturers. If you use Adobe software, all of it's been updated and seems fine. I've been using a bunch of that on Catalina for some time now, and that all finally seems to be working. Um, but, you know, go check the drivers and the software that you use. Make sure that what you have is compatible with Catalina and then you're good to go. Uh, I also want to warn you that one of the outstanding things that people were pointing fingers at each other, like Apple was pointing the finger at Adobe and Adobe was pointing a finger right back at them, was uh, tethering. It was a real struggle. So if you shoot tethered, that you may want to still wait if you shoot tethered with Adobe products, Lightroom in particular, um, there were a lot of cameras that were that wasn't working, though Apple just released a patch to Catalina this, this last week as we record that seems to have addressed it for the most part. So it must have been an Apple problem because <laughs> they, they, they released a patch and now it works for a lot of, for, I'm hearing most everyone, it now works. So that, that's cool. good news. But if you shoot tethered, you still may want to stay away from Catalina just to make sure um, that it's going to work. So there you go. For, for what that's worth, that's where we're at. And I can give my photo taco silver approval on all of those updates at this point. All right. Listener Q&A. I love doing these. It's so much fun to get interact with our community. And so we, we asked uh, a little earlier, 
in our Facebook group for questions that listeners had that they'd like us to go through on the episode. And that's what we're going to do today. We have, I have seven of them that I pulled. We got more than that. I just, we certainly don't have time for every one of those questions. And so I, I pulled kind of a, a, a mix of questions, trying to get kind of a mixture of things that, so we can have a lot of interest across all of our listeners and what, what they have there. So you ready to go fire up these questions here, Brent? Let's do it. I love these types of episodes and uh, I know we got some good questions in there. So yeah, let's get to it. Yeah. All right. So the danger is I have names for these and I may blow it when I say their name. <laughs> Please forgive us. Well, yeah. I mean, we'll do the best we can, but I just don't know how to say everyone's name or even if you are male or female all the time. I made that mistake a few episodes ago too. I had a what looked like a male name and it was a female. And so, you know, it, it just happens. They were very understanding, but they did email me and say, just so you know, <laughs> I'm a woman. And, and it's uh, actually nice. We yeah. love... I I liked that anyway. Yeah, you know, if, sure. if I get something wrong like that, let me know. <laughs> I yeah. want to I want to do what I can to correct it. Absolutely. So, all right. So, with that caveat, the first one is Liam Maroney. I think I got that one, and uh, he says top places you want to photograph this year. Yeah. Well, actually, he has a three part question. So that's the first of it. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to tell you, Brent. My I have two places that I want to go. I'm not a I'm not primarily a landscape photographer anymore. I, I sure. was at one point. I really liked that. But I've got more clients that are portraits and family photos and stuff. And that, so that's more of what I do than anything else. But I have two trips that I do have planned for this year. Nice. Uh, we have the Create Photography Retreat that's going to be in South Carolina. And wait, not South Carolina. Is it South Carolina? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The Blue Mountains. Greenville, South Carolina. Greenville, South Carolina. Okay. When I said it, it didn't sound right to my head. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, October, we'd love to have you come join us at that retreat. Tickets are available now. Go to createphotographyretreat.com or better is hit the link in the show notes because we have an affiliate link and we'd love for Ooh. them to know that we sent them your way. So um, would love to have you there. We're, it's it's a fabulous retreat. If you haven't heard us talk about it before, we've got some podcast episodes that that cover it. You can just go search retreat over at masterphotographypodcast.com. You can go check out the website. If you want to go just look at it, you can go to createphotographyretreat.com and, and see what it's like. But we're, I'm going to be there. Brent, you're going to be there now, right? So my boss just gave me the go ahead. And this was like less than a week ago. So uh, I'm... I'm making all plans to be there at this time. You nice. betcha. It's going to be, I, I was looking at some of the area and I was just like, that's going to be awesome. Yeah. And to shoot the fall color in that area is just going to be phenomenal. going to love it. Yep. I'm planning to do a pre-retreat workshop. I'm going to do crash course flash lighting. So if you are interested in that, look for that. We don't have it available quite yet, but we're, we will be very shortly to have that available. And uh, so you can book that. And, uh, and then shoot the fall colors with us. It's going to be lots of fun. My second trip is uh, we're planning to go. I'm going to go to Hawaii for the first time in my life. Never been there. Uh, in April, I'm planning to, to go there with my family. So that'll be fun. nice. Yep. Which island are you going to go to? Um, the main island. The big one. Yeah. The big one. Good. That, I've not been to that one, but certainly there's lots of great things there to enjoy with the family and to, of course, shoot as well. So Right. Right. Yep. I'll be Very bringing cool. my camera along and... Uh, hopefully my family will be patient as I try to take sunset and sunrise <laughs> photos, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. It's yeah. definitely not the cool. primary purpose for the, the trip. So my family will be the first, first priority there. Cool. What about you, Brent? You have some well, trips planned? 
man, I've had so much things happening in these last um, <laughs> weeks, months, where there was a slight chance I would have been able to go to uh, India here during spring break, but that fell through. And so I'm not going to India. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll do something else. Maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll do that. Um, what we're actually looking to do now, I want to actually look to try and find some places closer to home to shoot because I just don't see myself getting out so much until about summertime. And the biggest reason for that is we're actually looking to uh, buy some property and build a home. So that's just going to take so much time. I've decided actually I'm going to just... I just need to not go anywhere for spring break. I have about a week and a half to almost two weeks that I could have had available for myself for spring break. And I could have gone somewhere epic, I'm sure. But I've decided I really need to do the smart thing. I've got so much things that I'm working on with my latitude photography school. And I want to make sure that that gets launched properly. And then with this whole ordeal of buying some property, uh, I just need to stick closer to home. And so I'm going to be looking for some areas here. I mean, I already know where I'm going to go, but I'm going to be looking to explore some areas here. There's a place called Goat Rocks Wilderness and uh, other locations in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest. And then um, Mount Rainier National Park is looking uh, really tempting to me as well. I've been there a couple of times and just want to explore something. You know, these are like three hours away from me, so it's not uh, that big, uh -huh. three hours drive. It's not that big, long drive or flight to get somewhere. Uh, this summer, what I'm doing, I'm applying for, and I'll go through the whole process in a future episode of Latitude, but I'm applying for uh, a national parks thing that they do for artists in the park. Uh -huh. And there's several up in Alaska that I'm looking to attempt to to um uh, basically apply for. So I need to write, you know, a big application, fill out this uh, application, submit some images, and then I need to do that by March 1, and then they'll make their decision in mid-April. So I should know here pretty soon whether or not that's going to pan out. And uh, that would involve in the neighborhood of between two to three weeks up in Alaska is where I'm focusing my efforts. So somewhere in Alaska, hopefully keeping the fingers crossed that I can get one of those artist residencies in the park. And then, of course, in the fall, like you had mentioned with the Create Photography Retreat, uh, I, I'm looking to uh, go there. I hope everything can work out. There's still one last little uh, tidbit of, of something I need to figure out, but I'm um, pretty sure it's going to happen. And when it does happen, I'll be doing a Fall Colors and Waterfalls workshop where we just drive around and uh, find these gorgeous waterfalls and uh, go shoot those with the fall color. It's going to be a fantastic experience. That'll be a pre, uh, a pre um, a retreat workshop as well. Uh -huh. It'll be on the Wednesday before the workshop, uh, before the, before the retreat. So looking forward to doing that and meeting everyone out there at that. And as yet, that's the limit of what I got going on for photography and the plans of where to travel so far this year if the artist in the park thing doesn't work out then i might still go to alaska just on my own anyway because alaska is just amazing and i've got some frequent flyer miles it's pretty cheap to get on up there cool all right his his second part to his question was what new gear do you have your eye on so for me i'm actually looking at the canon 5d mark 4 and oh. it, it would be the first time i go into full frame um, and it's not, I wouldn't, it's not because I am like dissatisfied with crop. Why I would do that. They're not putting out a new crop. <laughs> They're not yeah. replacing the 70 Mark two with the 70 Mark three. The 90 D is better than the 80 D that I have, but, uh, 
I really want to upgrade my 7D Mark III camera. And the price is right for this the 5D Mark IV. That's the thing. The price has really gone down. And so that there's really not that much difference between it and the 90D. And so I, I don't know. But, but really, I'm going to wait because I really want to see the rumors about the new R cameras between two or three new models that are going to be announced or, or made this year. And there's some really interesting things in those rumors that I want to wait for. So I'm, I'm definitely not buying anything until I hear about those cameras. Switching to Sony looks totally appealing. I just, man, the, the effort it would take to get there is too, <laughs> yes. is too steep for me. And so, so I, I just, it's just really not an option. So yeah, I'm, I'm probably sticking in Canon land. I'm looking at potentially getting the 5D Mark IV, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. It's been a long yeah. time. I've said it before that I, I was looking to do something and uh, and I didn't. So we'll see. What about you, Brent? Yeah, I'm kind of in that holding pattern as well. It's, I mean, I've got the 5D 4 I've been shooting that since 2016. And I now have also the uh, Sony a6400. Uh, I got two lenses for that. And beautiful cameras, both... Um, but really, as far as what I've been thinking I might do, I've been thinking I might switch to Sony full frame. But I don't know. I'm still kind of in that holding pattern, too, because they're going to be really I'm, the rumors are having it. They're going to be releasing a couple of new bodies too. Sure. the the A7R Mark IV looks amazing. Let's face it. But <laughs> the price and the fact that it's 64, the 64 megapixels. Yeah, that's just a whole lot of megapixels. Yeah. And I'm just not sure I want to do that to my computer. So uh that whatever the the price and whatever else too so it's i I do am in a holding pattern and i'm still intrigued by what canon may end up doing with their mirrorless system there's a rumor for a 45 megapixel camera out there and that has ibis and right that you know there's lots of lots of good things that are just about to come out i think about to be announced and things are looking good then you know uh Fuji just announced they're they're releasing a new uh, sort of a mid level camera that actually has the bearer pattern on the sensor. Which right, I, right. You know, longtime listeners will know that I had a problem with um, the X Trans. It just right. wasn't for me. And boy, with that bear pattern, that's got me tempted too. But Speaking I'm super of that. in this holding pattern because I, I guess. I just feel the need to just kind of sit and wait for a little bit longer just so I can really know that I'm making a good decision when I do finally make a decision with whatever I'm going to do, whether it's stick with <laughs> Canon or go ahead and move over to Sony. Those are the two likely scenarios, right. moving over to Sony full frame or sticking with Canon. So speaking of the Fuji and the X-Trans, I've actually done, I've been doing a, a huge amount of testing with Lightroom over the last three weeks. Yeah. Huge amount of testing. And, and, I, and I'd hoped to be done before the end of January, so that that because that was going to be my photo tackle podcast episode in January was to talk about sure. this testing and what I was doing there, and I just went down the rabbit hole in testing. I just <laughs> I have learned a ton about Lightroom and how the resources work. And one of the really surprising things, I don't want to give all the detail yet because I want everyone to go listen to the photo talk episode that will be in February for sure. It will be released in February. Um, but I have discovered a difference in how raw files are handled between the different cameras, a significant nice. difference in how they're handled. Nice. Um, and so, so I'll, I'll have some details on that. So you can kind of understand a little bit about the impact that why, you know, for me, 
I think I've seen how Lightroom performs for me differently because of the type of camera I shoot now. Now that I've seen the comparison, I've rented the other bodies enough that I have a, a good number of raw files that I've been using in my testing. And there is a definite impact based on the raw file. So anyway, I'll, I'll share more information on that in photo taco soon, but you have sufficiently whetted our appetite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the idea. Okay. The last part of the question from, from Liam was what does the future of master photography podcast hold? And this is kind of a tough question to answer, I think, because we don't have anything major that we've been working on behind the scenes for, for anything. We, we have our retreat that we work with, with uh, Brian Hansen on every year with that create photography retreat. We've got our weekly episodes. We have, uh, you know, plans on some guests we want to bring on and so on, but nothing really major there. Just continuing forward with what you've been hearing for the last few yeah. years, we're going to continue. Uh, maybe the better question back to Liam would be, what would you like to see us do with the Master Photography Podcast? Is there is there something that you would love to see us go into that we haven't yet? So, yeah, and you know the the, the way that I think we have it structured, you know, you have we each have the the other podcast. You know, you're pretty active with Photo Taco, and yep. I've got the the Latitude, and so these are kind of uh, shall we say, I don't want to call them necessarily periphery because these are kind of sort of our babies. Right. Right. And the, the master photography podcast is where we come together and, uh, we have, you know, this, this collection of, of effort coming together. And so I, I think it's a nice, uh, for me, I find it to be a nice setup that we have where we have the, the, the collection of, of the, the total, the totality of the, you know, most of the five of us plus guests, um, but then certainly uh, the, the I don't know if we want to call it the, the, the niches or the deep dives, whatever you want to call it with, you know, you and your photo taco and me with latitude. Um, those kinds of things are, you know, another outlet for us to have yeah. there and, and allows us to niche into what, uh, you know, we have some specific interests in. So um, I love that idea of turning it back to Liam and the rest of the listeners and saying, if there's something that you'd like to to hear or, otherwise have us get involved in for me anyway i'm all ears on that kind of stuff so let us know if that's uh, something you guys got in mind that we should be looking at because i think that would be interesting to hear yep perfect all right let's move on to question number two of seven we, we probably have to pick it up we've got like already <laughs> quite a bit of time spent. this always happens doesn't it? it does it does but um this next one comes from my friend sandy brown i know sandy we met at the creative photography retreat in 2018 it was really our 20 2019 it was in 2019 and it was fun it was fun to meet her and she's she's awesome. She's a great photographer, and it, it was really we. I love meeting the listeners. So anyway, she she asked this question. She says, "How to blend ambient light with flash for a more natural outdoor photography, or how to create a backlit portrait with the use of speed lights or strobes?" Can you guess where my focus has been lately? I've used flash, the Godox AD two hundred, for the last three portrait sessions, and so far I've booked two more sessions. I think it's because of the lighting advantage which is setting me apart from the rest of the photographers in the area. Well, congratulations, Sandy. That is awesome that you've been able to step up your game a little bit with some flash and and, uh, attract more clients because of it. I think that always happens. Uh, I so many, I know I was this way. I was really hesitant to add flash because I didn't know how to do it. 
And uh, I I kept thinking like, well, and I was justifying in my head, well, I can just say I'm a, I'm a natural life photographer. And if we go at the, at the golden hour to shoot, that's producing the really nice light anyway. And then I don't have to produce it myself and I don't have to drag around equipment and I'll be more nimble. And, and you know, there's some merit to all of that, but it really, at the core of it was, I didn't know how to do flash. Once I learned it, man, did my image quality go up and my portraits go up. And, and so I think I agree, Sandy, that's probably exactly what's going on is you've upped your game with adding flash and it's really making a difference. Um, so answering your questions, balancing ambient light. So here's the process that I go through. It's not to say it's the only way to do it. There's certainly going to be other ways that people do it. Everyone approaches things from different directions, but here's how I do it. This is what I, I do when I go out and I use flash. So the first thing I, you need to do is, uh, I set the shutter speed. That's, uh, and I set it to the max sync speed almost always. And, um, and so that on my cameras is one two fiftieth of a second. If you don't know what max sync speed is, we have an episode for that. It's called Flash Shutter Sync with Levi Sim. And I think it was me and Levi on that episode that talked about that feature, how it works, why it's important. And so you can go check that out to get more information there. If you don't know what it is and you just want kind of a, a safe setting to use, one one sixtieth of a second is pretty safe usually for most cameras as being um, fast yet slow enough that you don't have you don't run into the sync problem and i don't want to go any more detail than that on that okay so i set the shutter speed um i'm doing 1 250th but to be safe you could do 1 60th then i am going to set iso to 100 um i may in some cases end up changing that so i can lower my flash power but that's where i you know everyone wants to start at 100 on the iso then I have, then it's uh, aperture is the one that you control um, the, the background ambient light with from there. And so I will meter, I'll use spot metering and I meter the background. And my goal is to actually have it be slightly underexposed. I, I usually shoot for like one third stop underexposed so that I can really make the person in the portrait stand out from their background by making them brighter. Our eyes go to the brightest thing. And if your background is bright, then you, you the, the person can get lost a little bit in the photo. So I try to, I try to get there. It doesn't always work. Sometimes there's too much light because it's, you know, middle of the day. So you kind of have to work around it and figure out what you're going to do. But if I can convince them to either go like golden hour, blue hour, or even, even a little later in the evening, uh, flash at night's really fun. Then, um, then from there, I'll just add the power on the flash. I start at one eighth usually, um, just cause the recycle times will be faster when you shoot and then I'll, and I'll just increment it up until it matches what I want. So it's a, just testing with it. I let the, the, model no like hey, i am gonna just take a couple of test shots here i want to make sure i can get the light balanced with the ambient and and they're totally understanding with that every model every client i've ever worked with is like yeah no problem go ahead and uh so you know i do as fast as i can rip through that and as soon as i'm comfortable that i have the flash uh power at where i want it based on the the previews that i'm seeing on the screen then then we go and we shoot from there and if I need to uh, change it as the light's changing, then it's aperture really that you're using to change throughout. So that's that's how I do that. And I asked her, what does she mean? Well, first, before I do that, anything else you want to add there, Brent, on, on how, what process there? 
No, I think you've done, you know, super well in describing that. The only thing that, um, I guess I, I would think about as a slight difference. You, you know, you mentioned everyone does something differently. Uh, you mentioned you start off at about a third of a stop under for the, for the ambient light. Um, I tend to go a little bit darker for the ambient light, but it just really depends on how much more different you want the subject to be from the ambient light. Sure. So it's really just a flavor. You know, what right. is the your intent and flavor that you want in the photograph? So by making that ambient light slightly darker, uh, you're able to just elevate that person a little more uh, or balance it out and have them blend into the background more. It just depends on what you want to do. Experimentation is key for what you're trying to go for, though. Yeah, for sure. Experimenting is is the way, at least for me, it's the way I learn the best is just go trying stuff. If you can get like, you know, someone from your family to go shoot with you for a little bit so you can just test stuff and you don't have the pressure of a client, the paid client in front of you. So you can play around. You have some time to play around. It's gotten to the point now where my kids don't want to do it. They're like, oh, again, you want me to go? Uh, I don't want to do this again. But, um, you know, wh- whatever. Or you could put it out there that you, you want to do some free kind of seniors for some, whatever. There's there's lots of ways to be able to, to try to put yourself in a situation where you can experiment and and play around with it and get it so you're you are moving making these decisions and moving really fast because that's going to be the key when you have a pain client in front of you is they they don't want to be standing there forever while you're you're working this out so have yeah. it kind of figuring it out the second part to her question there by backlit what she meant is faking the sun in the background and um she lives in an area where there's a beach and there's people who often want like the sun sun in their photos essentially and uh, you, you certainly can arrange for the time of day, but that's not always working for the client that the time of day is going to match. Um, and or they may have uh, like composition sorts of challenges too. you. It might be like, well, the sun's going to be right here right now. But man, that building is there or that wire is there or whatever it is. There's there's some reason that composition doesn't work. So you get the real sun in your photo and um so to fake it, you, you certainly can. I see examples of this all the time. I'm a part of the uh, MagMod community in the Facebook group, and uh, they have people that are posting like fake sun photos constantly. And lately, they've even been posting like their recipe for it. How did they set up the lights? So that might be something really good, Sandy, for you to make sure you're a part of is the, the MagMod group. Not that you have to use their equipment to get there. But just even the lighting setup and then other modifiers can be used to do that. I do like the MagnaMod stuff, though. Anyway, the the it, it could be really challenging in the middle of the day. If it's like 1 in the afternoon and you want to try to get the sun down in the closer to the horizon in the photo and fake it, well, now you have to overpower the sun. And, and while that's possible, especially if you have like a few of those 8200s or the bigger ones like 8400 or 8600, um, that can certainly help you to overpower the sun. Um, but it's, boy, is it a challenge. It's pretty hard to get there. Uh, you probably need high speed sync at that point because you're going to need faster shutter speeds. And it's definitely a little bit more advanced technique. It's far easier to do it when the sun is more gone, either low in the horizon or it's set and uh, work in the golden hour or blue hour just after the sun has kind of gone down, then you can use it and put the there the flash there. So I would do one light. You're going to need two lights. Probably you could try with a reflector in the front, but probably two lights, one in the background. I'd put it at full power. I'd, I'd gel it with yellow, 
put a yellow gel on there too, just to, to get the colors to match. Maybe even an orange, a CTO gel might be a, a nice one to have too. And then, um, and, and probably at full power and getting it so that it's uh, kind of barely out of the frame. So you, you really get that burst of light coming or maybe barely in the frame. And, um, and then I, I would use another flash in front and balance the two and, and try to work that out. So again, experimentation is a good thing to do there and, uh, and see what you got. Okay. Should we go do number three? Question number three. Uh, this one comes from David Patton. And he said, I started shooting film again, mostly for fun, since I have a digital camera that I primarily use. But do you know much about the different films? I have some Velvia 100 to shoot, but I don't have experience with slide film. For black and white, I have a roll of, is that Ilford? I think it's Ilford. Ilford Delta 100. Yeah, I'm not a film guy, so. (laughs) But again, I don't know much about the differences in films and what works best in different situations. I've mostly just used whatever color negative film is cheapest and available, but would love to hear other people's experiences and thoughts. So, Brent, I knew this was right up your alley. I've never even shot film, not once. Oh, man. Yeah, the the Velvia (laughs) is like, that's almost all I shot when I was a film shooter. Okay. And we, I started with 50 because that's what we had, Vel- Velvia 50. And then when they came out with Velvia 100, it was just like, oh, my, this is amazing to have another stop worth of, of, of you know, ISO and still have those awesome punchy colors that we get in our Velvia. So it came out really well. They also had Provia 100. And then there was Astia, which was both of those. Provia was a little more natural. Astia was really uh, had a little more subdued type colors. But the the Velvia, that's what that was the landscapist's film, so to speak. Okay. And it would give you nice punchy colors and really give you a sense of just that green was, you know, slap me silly green. That red was just awesome, awesome red. And then we also had there was another one by Kodak. For some reason the exact emulsion name is is escaping me, but um E100 VS, I think it was, for very saturated. And that one did brilliant in the blues. So if you didn't like the blues in your Velvia, then you went over to the Kodak and you shot that one. So that's what you're taking to Hawaii. Lots of good stuff there. The thing about shooting it, though, is it is definitely very, very picky in its exposure and what you're trying to do. So most of our digital cameras, we're looking at our dynamic range in the neighborhood of an average digital camera might be in the neighborhood of about 12 stops dynamic uh-huh. range. Some of them go to 14, you know, somewhere in there. Yeah. So we have lots of uh, this latitude between the, the brights and darks that we can play with a little bit. When you're on the Velvia 100, you're going to be cramming yourself down into, if you're lucky, about six stops worth. So you have a lot less latitude to deal with. And so your exposure becomes way more important to nail it the first time or the second or third or whatever, but to just (laughs) nail it to, you know, so experiment a little bit with it and get a feel for what you like and what's going on with it. But it can also be hard to judge because you have to have a nice light table or some other light source that's nice and even and hopefully properly calibrated so you have a good light source to judge it off of. So daylight balance light source is good. And then you hopefully have a way to enlarge it as well and hopefully have a way to digitize it. So to scan it or to have your lab scan it, something like that is certainly good. But you have probably about a one-third of a stop 
variance in your latitude before, in my estimation, that image would be considered too much overexposed or too much underexposed. And it's hard to, to bring that back to life. So that's probably the one caveat, super caveat that we have with shooting slide film. Gotcha. And a, a lot, sometimes a lot of people will relate that to shooting like a JPEG in your, in your film or in your camera, because your digital camera is certainly, you know, putting a lot of those uh, calculations in there and baking all of those, those processing decisions into that JPEG file. And I think there is some, there's definitely a lot of correlation there because you just don't have as much flexibility when you have your camera creating a JPEG for you. So if you overexpose your highlights and you're, you're in raw, well, if you were a half a stop overexposed, you might still be able to pull that down and still right. have some detail there. You do that with a JPEG, forget it. You do that with a slide film, forget it. It's just not going to be there. So when you're in negative though, so that takes us to the Ilford Delta 100. This is a very popular film for uh, black and white negative shooters and very fine detailed wonderfully smooth beautiful grain and it's just a good wonderful film for getting nice quality details uh, i've shot this both in the 120 size for medium format uh, a little bit i had a, um, a twin lens reflex camera that i used uh, for a little bit and then mostly just in a 35 millimeter uh, size for that and it just gives beautiful prints but you have a lot more latitude you're going to come out with 11 to 14, sometimes 15 different stops of, of detail, depending on how good you are at printing and what detail you can pull out of that negative. But you have a lot more latitude in that negative. And so you can uh, have, it, it's a little more like that idea of shooting raw where you have some leeway. Still, when you scan it though, you're going to have a little more challenge because your scanner itself is limited, but the negative itself holds a lot of detail. Right. And if you're going to be doing your own darkroom prints, that's a really good film to use if you need to go with something more go you know higher iso go with the um go with a delta 400 that'll work really well for you too you just have a little bit more grain okay so and this is the thing that i've heard about film i've never done it before but i've heard that some prefer it to digital purely because the edges are just a little crisper in their images what do you think the edges of the image are a little crisper no no in the, their images? The, the edges of detail yeah. I I don't know that I would be able to speak to that specifically. Mm. Um what I always I'm trying to think to some of the ones that I printed. Now I do have um up on my wall, I've got a waterfall from the Columbia River Gorge, but I shot that on four by five, so that's almost unfair. Yeah. <laughs> because that's a four by five negative. Right. And you're good you're gonna have detail. Yeah. Um so yeah, I I, I just it, it's hard to say because the film has a natural curl yep. on those edges. And so if you're shooting with the, the argument might be, you know, if you're shooting with a lens that it was coming from the film days, it was anticipating that slight ever so slight curl. And you know, the, it, it might still give you a better result because of that. And then if you bring that lens into the digital world, then you're going to have that issue. Uh, you know, I don't know, even with our digital lenses, do we get sharper in the edges? I think we are digitally designed lenses, I should say, you know, designed for digital. I think we're still looking at, you know, if, if it's a run-of-the-mill lens, you're still looking at edges that are just coming in soft. Uh, and the wider angles you have that t used to tend to be the, the issue uh, because the light would be coming in at such an angle and the film could handle yeah. that. 
yeah. uh, being struck at an angle, whereas the digital sensor could not. But with our redesigned lenses that are bringing us an image that is, for the most part, more straight on than before, that physics issue is is mitigated. But if there's still people that are comparing and saying that's what they're seeing, I, I don't know that I can argue against it, but I also haven't seen anything to to support or deny that. And it's it's not the edge of the frame; it's the just the edges of all the detail through the photo. The edges themselves are oh, are so more like crisp. so edges of detail of the subject. Yeah. So I just spent five minutes talking about something <laughs> <Yeah>. I had. <laughs> um, it wasn't five minutes. Um, so that makes I I guess I can see that and. So here's the problem with that. That's a that's a a couple of things probably going on with that. And I would say that's a resolution issue if you're sure, not yeah, outputting that's, that's what I your thought. image to properly uh, sized for whatever you're viewing it on. So you know when we upload something to Facebook, it's just like, well, they recommend outputting it at twenty forty eight pixels. I think it is. But how do you know that's what it's going to be viewed at? You just don't know that. Right. So they're asking for more resolution than necessary. Um, when it comes to printing, that's all in your output sharpener. Right. Right. And I I can get better prints out of my digitals than I ever did out of my film. There you go. So it's for me, uh, when it comes to printing, I prefer the digital process for sure. Yeah. When it comes to shooting and when it comes to shooting large format, that's a different story. But if you're talking 35 millimeter, um, I think I, yeah, I can easily get better prints out of, out of a digital image for sure. And it looks, the edges are, it's, it's all in your output sharpening technique. That's, that's all there is to it. Yeah. Okay. All right, let's move on to the next question. This is from, I think it's Braden Brazda is how I'm going to say it. <laughs> Looks good to me. All right. He says, I'm having my first portfolio review for my work, and I'm wondering if there are any tips for picking my images as I shoot a whole bunch of different things. Should I just pick one genre of photography or get a sample of images from across genres, as well as any tips for the review itself? So um, my advice, I have two pieces of advice here. So I, I would approach this with, with two objectives in mind. So first, make sure you definitely submit the maximum number of photos that you're allowed, whatever that is. The, most most um, reviewers, most portfolio reviews will say you can submit up to 20 images or you know they'll put some maximum number. Don't submit anything less than the maximum. Even if you have to reach into some that you're like not super proud of, and you already think that you could do better than that, get their feedback. Like that's going to be, they're going to spend their time on it based on how many you submit. So definitely maximize that and send them the most you can. And then the second part, selecting which photos I would go across all of your genres and I would try to pick the ones that you have sort of struggled with maybe, or you think are really close to being good but you're not quite happy with them and you're not exactly sure where to go with them so that you can be happy. We, we see these all the time posted in our Facebook group, people who have an image that they're, they're like, ah, I'm so close to having this be good, but I just don't know where to, where to go with it from here. I try to find those images because that's going to be the, the thing that you're going to learn the most from in a portfolio review. Then if you've got a, a mentor or someone you really respect their opinion and you have these images, now you're going to get from them the advice of what they would do to those images to improve them. And you're kind of stuck with them. So like stuck on them, you, you don't know where to take it. So, uh, so now you, you, it can get you unstuck, give you some ideas and, and things to try. And, and it's really going to help you to learn and uh, so that that would be my advice on how to do it, Brent. What do you think? 
I like your thinking there on the idea of submitting something that you you know you have questions about already. And I certainly wouldn't say you start out the whole thing with saying, oh, I had a question on this one. Let them yeah, yeah. give you that feedback. Sure. And then as you have the opportunity, I'm assuming this is a one-on-one uh, interaction. Maybe it's where you're shipping it out, emailing it to someone, and then they're going to write a review back to you. Uh, I'm assuming this is a one-on-one reaction. Right. Uh, as far as submitting the maximum number of images, when you were starting to say that, I was just like, well, don't submit the junk. <laughs> but <laughs> if you've got one that is subpar and you know it's subpar and you can still throw it in there and your purpose is to learn from it, then absolutely I'm going to agree with that. Because initially I was like, no, I'm going to have to disagree with Jeff. But no, I actually um, I like the way you came about that because you have the purpose of learning. You have the purpose of gleaning as much as you can of that experience. Why not? If you if you leave it out of the collection, you're missing out. If they're going to let you submit 15 and you only submit 14, you're potentially missing out. Or only and five, so, yeah. Uh, as long as it's not just complete mess up and totally out of whack as far as the genre is concerned, sure. go for it. Right. And as I mentioned on genre, I think you'll know whoever you're having give a review, they are, you, you know them for a certain type of work. So you probably want their feedback on that same similar type of true, work. So if true. you're talking about like micro genres uh, between, you know, portraitures and different styles of portraitures, you know, I say, yeah, go for all your portraitures. If they're a portrait shooter, if they're a landscapist, you know, go for your different genres of landscape or wildlife or what have you. Um, if they are simply saying only show me this, you know, and they're looking for macro portraits or something like that something off the wall like that well then that that you know follow their guidelines with what they're looking to give you advice on right but otherwise yeah learn as much as you can from it use it as a learning opportunity for sure okay and then i think the the last piece of advice is really hard to do <laughs> it's terribly painful don't try to defend your photos either don't yeah don't start making excuses like if they start to say well i do this or i do that don't be like well i, I have didn't have this camera what and it doesn't matter that's that's yeah. not why you're there you're just going to take up time with whatever defense you're going to give and it's totally natural it's going to be super hard to fight it but just don't try to defend the photos just take in the information <laughs> i deal with this so much at the, <laughs> at the university and it's I don't want to say it's fun to see them squirm, but when it, when I get that defensive feedback or that defensive stance from them, it's just like, uh, you know, I feel for you. I understand where you're coming from and I'll give them all the sympathy they want. But when it comes down to it, it yeah, yeah, it's still it's an issue yeah. and you have to learn to come overcome those issues. And that's what the learning process is about is to learn to overcome those issues. Yeah, and I don't think it matters with the the level of expertise of any photographer. If I took any of my images and I took it to a review, they're going to find stuff that they would change. And I mean, yeah. we're asking them to. That's their job. <laughs> In this instance, that is precisely what we're asking yes. them to do is to say what they would do to change that photo. So, yeah, that's what that's <laughs> you don't need to defend it. You don't need to worry about trying to make sure that they understand the situation. Um, but if they ask a question about the situation, then answer it. Sure. But don't just don't go in there with this attitude of you got to defend your ground and make them believe your images are good. <laughs> okay. Question number five comes from Brianna Miller. These names have been easier today. That's good. <laughs> and it says she's Brianna says how to encourage printing with clients without sounding pushy. Should I include prints in my packages? Okay. So let's answer the second question first. 
you absolutely should do that if you want to make money. <laughs> I am I am a thousand percent convinced that if you want to make money as a photographer, this is how you do it today. You do in-person sales on prints and you mark them up significantly, big margins there. People will pay it and you will make way more money that way. Um, so if that's your objective, if you want to make this a career, you want to make this a your full-time job, that's how you make money today, especially if you do weddings and in-person sales. It is tough business. It is a lot of work and I mostly hate it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't do it because I mostly hate it and uh, it's not a part of the process I enjoy. So I don't do this myself. This is definitely a do as I say, not as I do sort of situation, which is I know hypocritical, but uh, I mostly hate it. And so it's just not worth it to me. This is my hobby. This is what I do for fun. And so I'm not going to do anything that I don't think is fun. That's part of it. And prints and dealing with that is just not fun for me. So um, so I choose not to. I do have a good episode, though, to refer you to, Brianna. And that's one from my friend Aaron Taylor. He came on uh, late last year. And he, he did an episode with me called In-Person Sales with Aaron Taylor, and he goes through his process. He Aaron has been wildly successful as a photographer. In fact, he moved to a brand new area and kind of had to start over on his business because he moved. He didn't have the built-in clients anymore, and he was able to, to rebuild it really quickly, really successfully, and make a lot of money from his shoots because he focuses the entire uh, experience really is focused around the in-person sales and what he's doing to drive that home. And I think he's got an approach that doesn't feel like it's super pushy, like you're worried about. Um, most of these clients, and I know even my clients, they want to print. That's really the end game. They want to put a print on the wall. And so I, I will tell my clients I offer it if they want me to print them. But most of my clients are like, no, no, I'll just print them myself. And I'm fine with that. Whatever. That's that's good with me. I know it's not good with a lot of photographers. It's not good with Aaron. He really wants to make sure he's taking care of them. And as a result, he, he gets paid for it. And again, it's it's not easy work. This is a lot of work, a lot of effort. And, um, and it, it, he's compensated well for it. He's established a, a really good clientele and, and a really good business based on that model. And he shares his tips and tricks in that episode. Anything you want to add there, Brent? Well, I was just go listen to the episode, but it is also about value. Yep. And yep. It, we as photographers probably value these types of prints differently. I don't know the way I look at it. I, I know I would value it differently. Um, like for my wedding, the the <laughs> it stinks. The only thing we have is like this little album. Yeah, and there's there's just nothing of uh, there's there's nothing significant in the photo, you know, prints that type thing that we have. And my wife and I were just talking about this, like you know, <laughs> we should fix that. Now we did happen to get the negatives from the photographer, but oh wow, um, that might be the other reason because I had a friend shoot it and I was like can you just give me the negatives? And he was cool with that. So uh, <laughs> it's really my own fault, but it's about a value proposition to say these folks probably that you're dealing with probably see a value in, in that print. And so if you're charging $300 for a, a big canvas or whatever, which hopefully you do, um, that's, that's, you know, it's, it's about establishing that value and that presence and the long lastingness and think about the heirloom aspects of yep. it and, uh, people start to see the value in that. So that's, For that's sure. probably the biggest challenge is to be able to communicate that value. Yeah. And, and Aaron does a really good job walking through it. How he, Perfect. how he helps clients 
kind of get over the sticker shock because it is definitely yeah. a sticker shock to them when they when they get going. How they get over it and then see it from that aspect, like the value. He he helps them to see the value in it. And most of his clients that start out saying like, nah, I, I just want to buy like, you know, one or two prints or whatever. They end up spending a lot more with him because of how he works through it. So go listen to the episode. He has cool. some good advice there. All right. Nice. Number six here is from Randy. Oh, Germar Gamer. Gamer. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I know this guy. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> so. Okay. Randy Gamer. And uh, he says, top five techniques you must use out in the field to capture images for large fine art prints with exquisite details. He said that's one of his top 2020 wish list items. So Brent... This one seeds up your alley again too. Large, far, fine art prints with exquisite yeah. detail. What do you got? Yeah. So Randy came with me to Alaska. Oh, and cool. when I went to Alaska in December and we went around shooting Unalaska Island and for some reason this never came up. So I'm just like, hey, I'm glad to see it here. That's awesome. Glad we can get this going. Um First thing that I'm going to say, solid tripod, and that's the whole system from from legs to, to head. Uh-huh. You need something that is beefier than you expect, than, than whatever. It also goes into the feet. We were noticing, especially on the tundra there in Alaska, the spiked feet would have really helped a whole lot better right. because you're going to get, dig down a little more to the hopefully more solid ground. And so either spreading it with the lowest legs way out, you have a nice solid ball head and just everything about the tripod needs to be rock solid. So start with that. Um, Certainly there's the idea of mirror lockup. If you have a mirror in your camera uh, that I would say, let's just go ahead and throw that into the tripod idea. Okay. Then switching to manual focus. I actually like doing that because I can get much more finely. I feel I can get much more finely detailed because when I'm looking at the, the screen on the back and I can magnify the view and get it just nailed in. And I know it's right focused exactly where I need it to be focused. And I'm not just letting the camera figure it out. You know, we've got hundreds to thousands of autofocus sensors in these bodies nowadays, and it gives us a really good approximation and whatnot. But if you're looking for that exquisiteness and you're looking to be able to just dial everything in super well done manual focus i think is the way to go on that and i love the sony because when i put that on manual all i have to do is just touch that focus ring and then instantly the screen on the back of the camera when i'm showing the live view side it just gives me that 10x magnification oh wow that's cool and then it goes away uh, when i hit another button or whatever so uh, on the canon i have to hit a couple of buttons to activate that magnification on the little screen um i'm On your lens, I'm going to then say F8 or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. I think you got to test it, but you have a balance there, a sweet spot balance between depth of field and diffraction that happens in your lens. So the wider your lens gets, the physically smaller your your opening gets, your aperture opening gets with that uh, F16, F22, etc. So if you had a if you had a um, a 50 millimeter lens at F22. And you measured that against, let's say, a 16 millimeter lens at f22. That 16 millimeter lens is physically smaller. Mm-hmm. When you have that physically smaller hole, you're going to have a lot more diffraction than you do on that longer lens because it's a physically physically larger hole. Right. So we want that aperture to be a balance between diffraction and depth of field. And usually, f8, f11 on many zoom lenses, especially anyway, that's what we call your sweet spot. It takes a little bit of testing to find out what's perfect for you. 
But this is also when you think too, what is more important for me? Is it more important that I get that su- subject that I'm focusing on sharp or that I have more depth of field? And mm-hmm. so you may have to do a focus stack. You may have to sacrifice uh, some of your sharpness in the diffraction area for more depth of field sharpness. And so that gets a little bit of complicated in thinking about what's important for your image, for your subject, that kind of a thing. Uh, the next one is uh, if you have a prime lens or test your zoom lens for where your sharpest setting is on that lens. Uh, most or many, I should say, zoom lenses, the the wider you go, the, the sharper you're going to end up rendering it. But there's certainly going to be somewhere in the middle of the zoom range is probably your best bot, your best bet and whatnot. So do what you can to find that sharpest zoom setting or usually by default prime lenses will naturally be more sharp for you. Uh, but again, it, you know, there's a lot of parameters that, that it's not going to be something that goes across the board. For instance, I shot, um, I owned when I had the the lines rental company several years ago. Now, a couple years ago, I had the Sigma 20 to 35 F2. Holy cow. That thing was sharp and they advertised it as three prime lenses in one, the 20, f2 the 24 f2 and the 35 f2 that thing was really sharp and i compared that against a multitude of lenses and even against some primes it was sharper than some prime lenses so there's you know it's it's not just a oh prime lenses are sharper all the time that's that's not the case but usually that is gotcha and then for your large fine art prints we want to go with as low as iso as we can we just want to get as much detail and as much or, or lower digital noise if possible. And by lowering our ISO, we're able to keep that digital noise to a minimum. There are certainly some other techniques that we can use that go beyond this and get more nuanced and more detailed. But he asked for the top five. Those are my top five <laughs> for the types of things I'm initially going to. Um, I don't have any prime lenses, so I'm going to be finding the sharpest zoom setting I can on that zoom lens. Uh, but other than that, those are the top five things that I think about when I'm doing some nice, exquisite out in the field thinking about these images. Perfect. Love it. I'm glad you knew how to say his last name. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sorry, Randy, I blew it. <laughs> but at least Brent was here to help me. All right, number I seven. I jumped in for you. <laughs> number seven is Paul Carpenter. I think that's a safe name. He says, is it safe to remove Photoshop 2019 from the CC update portal and the two gigabytes of memory and i think he means disk space that it consumes it appears some have tried and end up losing ps 2020 as well do the plugins like luminzia that you purchased while using photoshop 2018 need to remain in those 2018 folders cheers paul all right so i just tested this actually it wasn't related to the question i was just cleaning stuff off my computer too so so i've tested this out both on windows and on mac this last week and uh it it actually works great so creative cloud is doing a good job there is one important step you need to make sure is there though when you remove the older version you get a a little dialog box that pops up and it's it's asking your if you want to keep your preferences or not and you definitely want to say keep instead of remove. Don't say remove there. If you say keep, then your preferences will stay along with the plugins. I've validated it at Lumenzia in particular. I tested it today 
and it worked just fine. I deleted my 2019 Photoshop CC 2019 from my hard drive. And uh, then I loaded up Photoshop 2020 and Lumenzia was still there because I said keep. So make sure you hit that button, the keep button, and you should be good to go. They have had problems with this in the past though, so I, I understand why you have the question. And maybe that's why you were worried about it because there were some people saying, hey, this didn't work. And um, I think they had some bugs initial release of 2020. But that's all fixed, it seems, and it, it worked out really well, at least here in uh, February of 2020. So there you go. Not having to reinstall Lumenzia just because I updated Photoshop is so wonderful. Yes. Yep. <laughs> I just now checked it as you were talking. I was like, ooh, I'm going to go check that. And yeah, it's there too. It just worked for me. And I literally did it like two days ago. So um, yeah, it's, that's so wonderful. Yep. Yeah, it's good. They um, they had to make some changes. And that's, I think they had some more residual issues after making those changes about where plugins go so that release to release, it can kind of stick around and yeah. um and they it seems like they've got it all worked out now so that's good it's good news okay we're gonna close up the show here i hope everyone enjoyed the episode we're gonna close with our doodads of the week and mine's gonna be a pretty spendy one this time <laughs> unfortunately i try to look out for the the hobbyist budget folks out there and this still could be an item that's that ends up in the hobbyist budget but probably not initially you might want to go with some less expensive options at first but i just got for christmas the magmod magbox their softbox and is this thing cool oh my goodness it is incredible it's the the ease of use makes it worth it just for that just because of how easy it is to use it compared to other softboxes i've gone through several now and quality of light i think you can get pretty close although i'd even say quality of light the softness of the light is better coming out of this than i've had in any uh, softbox that i've used and so um there's also a difference here where you can put easily put two flashes inside of it. It's like it's built that way from the beginning. You don't have to have some crazy adapter that you're trying to stick in there and and uh, mount two flashes. And uh, it's just it's an incredible thing, so easy to use. And uh, the unfortunate part is it's five hundred dollars for the Magbox Pro Kit, which is a lot. <laughs> it's a very expensive softbox, but. Um, so again, probably not the thing you want to start with. There's there's less expensive options. I have some less less expensive options for you over at phototacopodcast.com in my budget gear uh, article. So you can go check that out for some other options. But um, when you're ready to upgrade and you're ready to uh, to be able to get something that's easier to use, then I wouldn't hesitate at all in recommending the Magbox Pro Kit. And I'll have a link in the show notes over to it. Brent, what about you? I'm going to recommend a book, and it's called Why Photographs Work, and it is 52 Great Images, Who Made Them, What Makes Them Special, and Why. Huh. So the author is George Barr, and he goes through, and he basically takes these images, and he shows them full page, and he then writes an essay about them, and he really gets nitty-gritty and picking them apart and helps us understand why it's working and why it's not. And then there's also commentary from the photographer themselves. And it's a mixture of environmental portraiture, landscape, some other, uh, you know, basic images like that. I don't think, I can't remember, I don't think there's any strict, you know, regular portraiture in there, but there might be. 
Um, I don't focus on those. So if it is, uh, I guess, forgive me, but this is the textbook I use in my advanced digital photography class. And I happen to have that going on this quarter. And so we're going through some of these with the students and we just talk about them. And we then of course draw connections and we relate it to what they're going through uh, with their images and what they're creating. So um, trying to, you know, just trying to draw those connections so they can uh, see what, works and what doesn't and that's the you know the perfect image or the perfect uh title for the book why photographs work good so it sounds like it's kind of like a public portfolio review <laughs> kind of yeah like a public yeah that's a pretty good way to put it because right. he's really and you know he doesn't just give you a couple of things he goes deep wow. and it's sometimes it's interesting also to hear the students uh say you know because they're this generation z maybe millennials whatever and i don't agree with that or i don't know you know they'll just come back and say this or that and uh, i always welcome that kind of dissension as long as they have reasoning behind it sure know, as, sure as long as you're not just flippantly saying i disagree um as, if you can put some some reasoning behind it perfect and that's what our purpose is is to discuss and to really dig deep and and then you know when you do that and you read it you're going to be able to find I think things that apply to you and your photography and how you might approach the craft as well then. Very cool. All right, let's close up the show. I want to remind you that you can find everything related to the show over at the home of the show, masterphotographypodcast.com. We have really good show notes over there. If you have a question about a topic, you can just put the topic into the search bar and you'll probably find an episode. We have a lot of them out there, lots of previous advice, and we'll try to point them out whenever the topics align so that we can point you to previous episodes and you can really go and listen to them, check them out. Our Facebook group, that's where we asked these questions or we were asked these questions. So uh, you can search that Master Photography Podcast. You do have to join, ask to join the group, and you have to answer a question to get in there. We, we immediately reject anyone who does not answer the question, just so you know. And that is name a host on the network. So you can put in there Brent or Jeff, and we will let you in. And as easy as that um, to get in there, but you do have to answer that question. The Instagram account for the show is at Master Photography Podcast. We'd love to have you tag us on your images so we can see your work and what's going on there. You can find my work over at jsharmanphotos.com or you can check out my other, my other uh, podcast, phototacopodcast.com. And like I said, I'm, I'm going to be releasing here in February a bunch of information about how to set up your catalog and your photos between internal, external drives and does... A really speedy external drive really matter and some things that I learned by accident about raw files what from different cameras so you'll awesome. want to you'll want to check that out we'll have Instagram Twitter and Facebook links to me there too if you want to follow me on social media Brent where, where can people find you people can find me this spring in the Palouse on a workshop uh, online you can find me at latitudephotographypodcast.com or latitudephotographyschool.com and let's see this president's day weekend i'm going to bring back my brentbergherm.com so that has been something i'm just doing so much with latitude photography school creating a lot of new lessons and a lot of new lectures and whatever you want to call it uh, some things to learn photography and the like, and I'm looking at releasing that service in March still, and um, still have some workshops there though that I mentioned with the Palouse, 
And so if that is of interest to you, head on over to latitudephotographyschool.com and take a look at that. We're doing a print and shoot workshop out there in the beautiful Palouse this spring. It's in the later spring. And I uh, look forward to, to having some people out there with that. And, um, of course, uh, on the socials, just my name, Brent Bergherm, whether it's uh, Twitter, not Twitter. Uh, I technically am Twitter, but I'm so inactive. <laughs> uh, Instagram and YouTube and, uh, the, of course, the Facebooks with, with a couple of groups for the things there as well. Very good. All right. Thank you so much, everybody, for, for listening to the show. We really appreciate it. We'd love to have you share the show with other photographers. Let them know that we're here. That's the way you can help us the most is spreading the word about the podcast. And we'll see you all again in another seven days. 